0: Welcome back to Counting to Five, live stream being broadcast live Thursday, April 19th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And this live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. Uh, if you're watching live, you can please uh, feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to monitor it peri- periodically and uh, answer questions as they come up. And in these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with all of the latest Supreme Court news, the uh, orders and opinions coming out of the court and uh, and, and uh, um, arguments that are uh, coming up in the near future. Here's what I plan to cover uh, in today's live stream. On Tuesday this week, uh, the court issued two new opinions in argued cases. So in a little bit, I'm going to talk about each of those, uh, those two opinions. Um, next week, that's the week of April 23rd, the court will be hearing oral argument in six more cases. Those are the last oral arguments of, uh, of this term. Um, so I will be, uh, previewing, uh, those six cases that are going to be argued next week. Um, but first, before we get to all of that, some quick news about one of the justices, a final update on a case that we've been watching for several weeks now, and uh, a new uh, death penalty stay application. Um, there's a lot to cover tonight, so I'm going to try and move pretty fast through everything. But again, if you're watching live and you have any questions, um, feel free to ask them and I can uh, go into more detail um, if there are any, uh, if uh, anyone wants me to on a particular issue or case. So first, uh, uh, just a quick news update. Um, this week on Monday, that's April 16th Apparently, Justice Sotomayor uh, had a fall at home uh, in the morning, uh, she attended Monday's oral arguments, but in the afternoon was diagnosed with a broken left shoulder. Um, she, uh, didn't miss any work, showed up, uh, at Tuesday's oral arguments with her arm in a sling. And apparently she's going to have her arm in a sling for a few weeks and is, uh, undergoing physical therapy, um, to deal with the, the broken, uh, shoulder. Um, Justice Sotomayor seems to be somewhat accident prone. She's had a few, uh, other, uh, bone breaks in 2009. This was after she was nominated, but before she was confirmed to the court, she had a fall in an airport and, uh, broke her ankle. And then in 2014, she tripped on a sidewalk and broke several bones in her hand. Um, earlier this year, also, and in, just in in, in January, um, Justice Sotomayor was treated by paramedics at her home for a, a low blood sugar episode caused by her diabetes. So she's had a few, you know, um, health issues, but uh, again, nothing that uh, seems particularly serious. She's uh, uh, after the uh, low blood sugar, sugar episode, she was she was back to work that same day. So. Um, uh, you know, a minor mishap, it, it seems like, but apparently nothing particularly serious. Um, so the latest update in a case that we've, uh, we've talked about several times in, in recent weeks, if you've been watching these, uh, these week, weekly, uh, live, uh, live stream episodes, uh, the case of United States v. Microsoft, um, that case is, is finally, uh, basically over with, uh, at the Supreme Court. On Tuesday the court issued a short opinion, officially ordering the lower courts to dismiss the case as, as moot. And this was exactly what was ex- expected to happen in this case. I've talked about this case uh, several times, but here's, here's a real quick summary of what this case is all about. The United States got a warrant in a criminal investigation. They got a warrant under the Stored Communications Act for emails that were stored in an MSN.com account. Um, that's a Microsoft uh, uh, email service. Now, Microsoft refused to turn over the emails that were, uh, sought by the, the, the government, and they argued that the emails were stored in a server located in Ireland, and they argued that the Stored Communication Act didn't apply outside of the United States. Now, this dispute between the government and Microsoft over the, this extraterritorial application of the Stored Communications Act, um, got all the way up to the Supreme Court, um, and was argued earlier this term. However, um, on March 23rd, so just a few weeks ago, Congress passed uh, something called the Cloud Act, which was part of the massive uh, omnibus spending bill. That one of the many things included in that omnibus bill was the Cloud Act. And what the Cloud Act did was it amended the Stored Communications Act to explicitly allow access to electronic data stored outside the United States. Now, once this was uh, this Cloud Act was enacted, uh, after it was enacted, the United States went back to the court obtained a new warrant um, under the provisions of the cloud act and this warrant replaced the original warrant now the original warrant uh under the old law is no longer in effect so both parties the united states and microsoft agreed that the case was now moot there just isn't a live issue anymore because the old version of the sort communications act is no longer the active law and the warrant issued under that old version is no longer in effect um so they they agreed that this case should be thrown out. And on Tuesday this week, the court did that and, uh, ordered the, uh, the case, uh, to be dismissed. So that case is, is, uh, is gone and, uh, and out of the way. Um, one final, uh, piece of news, um, from earlier today, um, it's the latest, uh, death penalty stay application. Now this, uh, was in the case of a man named Walter Moody, uh, who was executed, was scheduled to be executed today. That's April 19th, 2018. Now, Moody was convicted of a 1989 murder by letter bomb of a federal court of appeals judge in Alabama. Um and he's currently, he's 83 years old. Um this, this would be the oldest execution by about five years in the modern uh, era of uh, the U.S. Uh, death penalty. Now, the, the, here's briefly, he, he, uh, made an application for, to, to, uh, to stay his, his uh, death sentence. Um, and here's, here's his basic legal argument. He was first convicted, uh, before he was convicted in Alabama for the, uh, the murder of the federal judge, he was first convicted in federal court for a series of mail bombings that also ended up, uh, killed a uh, Georgia civil rights lawyer. And in the federal proceeding, he was sentenced, um, in federal court to seven life sentences and 400 years, uh, in federal prison. So, uh, you know, a, 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 um, a, a, a life sentence there while he was in federal custody. He was released to Alabama's custody for purposes of the state murder trial. And there was a condition of his release that he would be returned to federal c- custody after the conclusion of the proceedings. The Alabama trial, uh, concluded with, with, uh, the death sentence and he was never returned to federal custody. Now the U S had asserted that it still had primary custody and had the right to demand him back, but the government's official position and, and uh, Attorney General Sessions uh, issued a notice to this effect, said that the United States waived its right and consented for Alabama to retain custody for purposes of executing Moody. Now, Moody argued that there was no legal authority for Sessions to interrupt his federal prison sentence. And so this was unlawful um order alabama came back and argued first basically that this this was a habeas corpus uh, petition so that's that's a uh, this a uh, type of petition that that argues that someone's being unlawfully uh held in custody um and it was it was a habeas corpus petition is directed to whatever authority is actually holding someone in custody and here he's being held by alabama but he wasn't alleging that alabama was the party that did something wrong so Alabama is arguing you can't use this habeas petition to attack some other party, in this case, the Attorney General of the United States' as actions. But they also cited some case law saying that, that, that prisoners have no right to contest the order that, uh, multiple sentences by different governments are served in, that they, there's just no interest in saying that the federal sentence must be served before the state sentence or vice versa. Now, earlier this evening, Justice Thomas uh, ordered a temporary stay of the execution. Justice Thomas is the circuit justice for the 11th circuit, which which covers Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. And when these uh, stays come in, stay applications come in, they go first to uh because stays uh, there are often emergency situations that need to be acted on very quickly they go to a single justice who has responsibility for the uh the um particular region that they come out of and that in this case is justice thomas normally death penalty stay applications are just uh, as a matter of course are referred to the entire court for decision and normally a single justice doesn't decide that on their own and this would be referred to the whole court however uh justice thomas issued a, a stay, ordered this uh, to be stayed, that suggests that there just wasn't time for the entire court to consider the application before uh, before the, they needed to in order to, uh, there was a risk that he would be uh, executed before the court had a chance to really consider his application. Um, so that was earlier this evening that Justice Thomas entered this uh, circuit justice uh, solo stay order. But then uh, less than, uh, so around a half hour ago, the full court, um, denied the stay application so that's the, the temporary stay is lifted and presumably this execution will go forward uh, tonight so that's that's just the latest in the the um, never-ending uh, stream of uh, death uh, pet, um, death sentence uh, stay applications of the Supreme Court um, earlier this week, there were six oral arguments, uh, on, uh, two each day from Monday through Wednesday. Uh, these are the cases I previewed in last week's live stream episode. I'm not going to, uh, talk any more about them tonight just because, um, there's a lot of other material to cover. Um, uh, but if you're interested in what those cases about are about, you can, uh, uh listen to, uh, last week's, uh, live stream episode. Um, the court, did not grant any new cases this week. Uh, this is for, for next term right now. They're still at eight cases granted so far for next term. That's the term beginning in October. Um, and, um, that, that's, uh, the the court's caseload in recent years has been has been at at uh, historic lows um, this year they're expected to issue only about 62 opinions and argued cases which is is, is was extremely low um, this but this is part of a long-term decline in the court's caseload back in the 1980s the court was hearing uh, upwards of 150 cases a year and that has declined and in recent years has been under 70 cases for a number and several recent years. Um, the court grants cases on a rolling basis throughout its term. Um, and uh, it needs basically just due to the time it takes, uh, for cases to get briefed after the court grants a case, there's, uh, the parties file briefs and there's a standard schedule, um, of how much time each side gets to, to file its, its briefs before oral arguments. And just based on that, the court basically needs to fill up its fall calendar. That's the October, November, and December argument. Sessions before it leaves for summer recess at the end of June. And there's 17 argument days. If the court wanted a pretty full argument schedule, that would mean about 34 cases, hearing two cases a day. Um, but in recent years, the court hasn't been hitting that and has had this uh, lighter caseload, less than, uh, less than a full caseload, uh, uh, in in the uh, fall arguments. So it's just something we're keeping an eye on is these these CERC grants from now until the end of term to see if this uh shrinking docket will continue and if this is just going to be the new normal that the court has these very light um light uh caseloads. So let's move on now to the opinions. The court had two new decisions in argued cases this week, not counting the Microsoft case that the short uh, opinion in the Microsoft case uh, ordering it dismissed. But uh, actual, um, you know, full decisions. Uh, there were two cases, and this this continues the very slow pace of opinions um, this year. The court is only up to seventeen opinions so far out of, as I said, sixty two that are expected meaning there's 45 more opinions uh, due to come down between now and the end of June. That's only 10 weeks uh, after this week uh, left. Um, so that means the court in order to um, get those all out has to, has to average four to five opinions a week. Um, the, the term is already, is always, uh, somewhat backloaded. The court, uh, issues, um, more opinions in May and June, um, than it does earlier in the term. But, uh, but this is, this, this term is, is, uh, kind of extreme in that regard. But we should expect a lot of opinions, uh, start, uh, coming out, um, from, from here on out through the end of the term. So let's move on to the two cases that the court decided this week. Um, the first of those cases is called Wilson v. Sellers, And this case was, uh, it was the, it was six to three. Um, Justice Breyer wrote for the majority and Justice Gorsuch wrote a dissent, um, joined by Justices Thomas and Alito. That was the, the three in dissent. Now this is, um, this is a, uh, a a little bit complicated, but I'm going to, I'm going to try and kind of break down what it's about. This is, it's purely a case about court procedures. Um, and it's, it's a criminal case, but it's not about the underlying criminal case or even the underlying, uh, constitutional claims that were uh, raised in the, in the criminal case. It's all about the court's procedures and how, how it goes about, um, deciding, uh, uh, reviewing, uh, lower court decisions. So here's what it's about. So, uh, petition for habeas corpus is, is, a uh, is a petition seeking an order for the release of someone who's being held in custody unlawfully. And it's a it's mechanism by which um, various uh, constitutional challenges to, to uh, someone's um, criminal conviction can be brought, uh, criminal conviction or sentencing. Um, in the criminal context, uh, habeas corpus is also kind of interchangeably referred to as uh, post-conviction review. All right, just had another technical difficulty on uh, the feed cut out briefly, but hopefully you're still with me. Um, I was just saying that uh habeas corpus um, is also referred to as post conviction review in the criminal context and it's it's uh there there are um, separate uh procedures in in there's what's known, it was referred to as uh, state habeas or state post conviction review and federal habeas so um, when someone is uh, challenging uh, on constitutional grounds um, their their conviction they uh, they can they can ha- bring both a uh, a petition of habeas corpus in state court and also in federal court now what this uh, this case is about is a um, a law a 1996 law called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act or AEDPA now this law is always is referred to as EDPA that's just how how it's uh how lawyers uh, pronounce this act this this law so EDPA this 1996 law um there was a perception at the time that that Habeas corpuses—the most of the habeas corpuses that were being heard, uh, habeas corpus filings that were being heard in federal court were frivolous. It was uh, it was uh, inmates who didn't have v- valid legal claims who were filing these abusive um, filings and just clogging up the courts with uh, with um, baseless uh, claims. That was the 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 perception, and um and that was what the lawmakers were reacting against. And the law was basically intended to um fairly severely curtail. Um, federal habeas corpus actions in in several ways. But um, habeas corpus and EDPA are incredibly complicated. Here, uh, this case only deals with one very small aspect of it. But the important thing is, um, before someone can file a federal habeas corpus action, generally they have to first exhaust state habeas corpus procedures meaning they have to file a state habeas corpus proceeding and and fully go through all the state procedures before they're allowed to file that claim uh, a claim on that on that on the same grounds in federal court um otherwise if they don't if they go to federal court without having gone through the state procedures first it's it's what's known as procedurally defaulted basically the claim that they didn't raise first in the state procedure proceedings is um, is not allowed to be brought in federal procedures so the the point is everything has to be funneled through the state courts first and the federal courts want to give the state courts first uh, first pass at reviewing these claims which are challenging um, a state court uh, criminal conviction now um, then once once one of these claims uh, gets to federal court so it's been through state habeas corpus uh, first and then it gets into the federal habeas corpus the federal court can only overturn the state court's ruling if it was, and this is some of the statutory language, if it was contrary to or involved an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. So the federal court isn't just deciding from scratch if the state court got it wrong. They have to decide decide whether there was clearly established federal law and that the state was contrary to or unreasonably applied that clearly established federal law. So it's a very deferential standard that, that just says, um, uh that unless the state was was just clearly wrong in what it's doing if if they could were arguably right um when when they issued their order then the federal court has to has to leave it alone now um the the issue in this case is is how do you apply this rule how does a federal court review um whether the state court uh had um involved an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law how do they how do they Apply that rule if the, the final state court, um, didn't explain its ruling. And I'll explain in a second what I mean by that. So, so let me give the basic facts of this claim. The, the, um, the criminal defendant was named Marion Wilson. Um, and he was convicted and sentenced to death in Georgia. And among other things, he brought a claim of ineffective, ineffective assistance of counsel at his capital sentencing and that the, his counsel had failed to present uh relevant uh evidence at the capital sentencing that might have spared him the death penalty now he brought a state habeas corpus action and the state uh, habeas court rejected his ineffective assistance of counsel claim um he uh appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court, or he applied to the Georgia Supreme Court for what's called a Certificate of Probable Cause to Appeal. That's a provision in Georgia law that requires a habeas corpus, uh, in order to appeal a denied habeas corpus petition, uh, you need to uh, apply to the Supreme Court for permission. The Georgia Supreme Court denied that application without any opinion. So there was an opinion from the the lower uh, state court that heard his uh, state habeas petition, but no opinion from the Georgia Supreme Court, which was the final court to rule on his claim in state court. Now, he then brought a federal habeas corpus action. So, again, he has to show that the state court decision was contrary to or involved an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law, but the the relevant decision was the denial of the application by the Georgia Supreme Court. So how do you decide whether a decision that – Gave no explanation and had no reasoning how to decide whether that was an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law. And just as a little uh, background, these, this kind of unreasoned decision is actually pretty common in uh, lower courts of appeals, in, in state courts of appeals, and even lower federal courts of appeals. Unlike the Supreme Court, which largely largely gets to gets to pick and choose its cases. Um the appeals courts often have mandatory appeals in hundreds or thousands of cases a year most of which are completely meritless and it's just not feasible for them to write a full opinion for every single case so they routinely decide numerous cases with just a one word you know affirmed or reversed um, and and just uh and and, and that's all uh, you get on many cases that go through uh, various appeals courts so how does a higher court review this normally outside of Certain special areas like habeas corpus, it doesn't really matter because the reviewing court that's looking at one of these uh, issues can just independently decide the legal issue and doesn't need to worry about what what the lower court's reasoning was. If, if, if they can just redecide the legal issue and see if the you know if, if it agrees with what the lower court did, but in habeas corpus under EDPA, because there's the federal court is explicitly reviewing the reasonableness of the state court's application of federal law. It matters why the state court did what it did. So there's two basic theories about what a court is supposed to do in this circumstance. One is what's, you can refer to as the look through model. And that argument is that, that when you have one of these, like this Georgia Supreme Court decision, which had no reasoning, you look through that unreasoned decision to the last court that issued a reasoned decision. So you'd look through to the lower habeas court, see what that lower court did, and And see if that was a reasonable application of federal law. Um the assumption here is basically the appellate court, if it just uh, affirms with a one word affirmance, it was probably doing it on the same basis as the opinion below. That's the kind of assumption that goes into this. But the other model is you say, well, look what what we're um, what what we're asking here and what the petitioner's burden is is to show that um that the the state court unreasonably applied federal law. So, so what, what we have to show is what we have to ask is whether there are any reasonable theories that could have supported what the state court did. Um, because if, if you, if there is some reasonable theory, if, even if it's not the same as the lower state court, if there's some reasonable theory that could have supported the state court, the the last state court's decision, then they, uh, the, um, then the, the petitioner, the criminal defendant isn't able to show that, uh, the, that the court unreasonably applied federal law. So that's that's the the kind of the two basic theories now, Justice Breyer for the majority um adopted the look through presumption um and he argued basically this is a realistic approach that the state higher courts. Um, they will often write, you know, denied or affirmed or dismissed when they've examined the lower court's re- reasoning and found nothing significant with which they disagree. That was some of uh, Justice Breyer's language. And he also argues that this is efficient; it makes it easy to identify the specific legal theory that needs to be evaluated. It doesn't require the court to have to imagine the reasoning the state court might have uh, that might have uh, the, the reasoning that might have driven the state court's uh, reasoning. Now, Justice Gorsuch. Dissent, and and his argument basically is that the traditional rule in American courts is that unreasoned summary opinions are, don't express uh, any necessarily express approval of the reasoning below, only the result. When it, when a uh, when a higher court just uh, affirms with a one word um a lower court opinion, they're just saying they they agree with the result that the lower court reached, not that they agree necessarily with all the reason of the reasoning of the lower court and he also focused on the language of edpa that's the the federal um, uh, habeas corpus law here the, uh, saying um they can only return, overturn these lower court decisions when it, when it resulted in a decision that was contrary to or involved an in unreasonable application of clearly established federal law so it, it focuses on the inconsistency of the decision um not the earlier reasoning so that's what that's what matters is the decision um n- contrary to uh, established federal law. And it also, he notes that this is a highly deferential standard. It was intended when it was passed to be difficult to meet. The burden is on the habeas petitioner to show the lack of a reasonable basis. Um, and, uh, so, so he argues basically the court needs to determine what arguments or theories could have supported the state court's decision and ask whether, um, whether these are necessarily inconsistent with, uh, um, prior uh, uh clearly established federal law so um, and he also po- he points out that there's a lot of different reasons why an appellate court might uh, just affirm without agreeing there may be one of multiple different theories uh, that were considered by a lower court and the court the higher court might agree with one of those disagree with others and so just that's enough for it to affirm or there might be a multi multi-part uh, test that's involved in whatever the legal question is that the petitioner has to meet every every prong of this multi-part test. And uh, if the court finds that there is one that it didn't meet, even if it disagrees uh, with the lower court, then that's enough to decide the case. Um, and he just, he just notes that that uh, there, there there may be a lot of costs associated with a full reasoned opinion that just outweigh the benefits of, of correcting tiny little errors that don't really make a difference in the outcome of the case. So... Um, the, he also points to kind of an unanswered question left over by the majority's opinion, which is is what does a state court need to do? So, again, Justice Breyer said that this is a presumption that you look through to the lower court, but that presumption is not absolute. I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. And so Justice Gorsuch in his dissent asks, what does a state court need to do to defeat that presumption? For example, if a state court, instead of just saying affirmed, one word, uh, um order just affirming a lower court decision, what if they included boilerplate language in every summary affirmance that just said, this court agrees with the result, though not necessarily the reasoning of the lower court opinion, affirmed. Um, would that be enough to all of a sudden defeat that presumption, or would that kind of boilerplate language leave the court in the same place it is right now? Um, does the court, does a lower court, if it if it, if it wants to affirm uh, but not endorse the reasoning of a lower court, does it need to use individualized language expressing that it's specifically not agreeing with a certain reasoning of the lower court? Because that gets the federal courts into the business of dictating how state courts must write their opinions, and that's something that the, you know federal courts generally don't want to. Um, interfere with. But the the big question here is, is how far apart are Justice Breyer's majority and Justice Gorsuch's dissent in practice? So I, I mentioned that Justice Breyer's look through presumption is rebuttable. Now, here's some language directly from Justice Breyer's opinion. He says, first, he says, the unreasonableness of the lower court's decision itself provides some evidence that makes it less likely the state Supreme Court adopted the same reasoning. So if the lower court opinion that you're looking through to was unreasonable, then, then that in itself is, is, gets you at least part of the way toward rebutting, uh, the presumption that, uh, that that was the same reasoning that, that the higher state court relied on. He also says, a federal habeas court may conclude that counsel has rebutted the presumption on the basis of convincing alternative arguments for affirmance made to the state's highest court or equivalent evidence presented in its briefing to the federal court, similarly establishing that the state's highest court relied on a different ground than the, the lower state court, such as the existence of a valid ground for affirmance that's obvious from the state court record. So, so again, he, he's giving a lot of, um, uh, possible sources for, for, for evidence rebutting um, this look through presumption. Now, Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion, um, points to basically some of those same standards as what a court is supposed to look look at to determine um, uh, whether there is, uh, there is some grounds that could have supported the decision. He says the court is not supposed to just imagine new rationales but, and he says, this is some of his language, what the federal court must consider is the state lower court opinion, if there is one, any argument presented by the parties in the state proceedings, and any argument presented in the federal habeas proceeding. And optionally, the court may consider um, other bases for denying relief that are apparent in the law and the record. So he's pointing to basically the same things that Justice Breyer suggested would, go, would potentially defeat the presumption. Um, and he also emphasizes the majority... Uh, uh, Justice Breyer's, um, position that the fact that a lower court's decision is unreasonable, um, would be grounds for, 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 um, uh, potentially defeating this presumption. Um, and, 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 and kind of questions whether that kind of guts this entire look-through idea. So there's really an open question about how this case gets applied going forward and whether it actually makes any difference. Now, just, just as, as an illustration, what about the defendant in this case this this Marion Wilson who is the the criminal defense the defendant in this case well he still has an uphill climb to get his sentence overturned so what happened in this case is here the the federal district court um, when 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 his federal habeas petition was uh, was filed the federal district court already looked through the the uh, the state Supreme Court decision and um, and found the, the lower, the state habeas court's decision was not unreasonable, and so upheld it. Now that's what the, the federal district court did. Now, when this went up to the federal court of appeals, the federal court of appeals affirmed the district court, but on different grounds. It said that the, um, the 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 court of appeals shouldn't have looked through, but should have just looked for any reasoning that could have supported the state court's decision. Now, the Supreme Court is saying the court of appeals did that wrong. The court of appeals should have just looked through. So it's sending this case back to the Court of Appeals um, to redo the appeal and see if the Court of Appeals agrees with the district court on the reasonableness of the state's look-through reasoning. Um, so um, to redo the appeal and see if the Court of Appeals agrees and um, uh, Wilson is in the exact same place. His, his petition is denied and he's done. But on the other hand, if the Court of Appeals um, disagrees with uh, the district court and thinks after when it looks through to the lower state habeas court, it thinks that the lower state habeas court's reasoning was unreasonable was an unreasonable application of federal law. Is that enough to justify them under justice Breyer's majority to, to defeat the look through presumption and then go on to consider other rationales that could have supported the decision? Because if it is, then we're right back where we started and uh, the court of appeals can just issue the exact same opinion they already issued um, considering other grounds, and again uh, Wilson would be um, uh, his petition would be denied and he 's done so so it 's just not clear here uh, you know we 'll just have to see how this gets applied over time it 's not clear how much difference it's going to make and how um, how uh, willing lower courts are going to be to uh, to uh, argue that this presumption of looking through the unreasoned opinion, unreasoned decision uh how easily defeated that presumption is so um the second case, and th- this case has gotten a bit of um, uh, more attention due to the lineup of the justices. This is Sessions v. DeMaya, and it's a case about the immigration consequences of a criminal conviction. Now, this case was originally when it came to the Supreme Court. It was called Lynch v. DeMaya. It was brought by the Obama administration to the Supreme Court. Um, and it was heard, uh, it was oral, it was argued, uh, last term, it was heard by a shorthanded court, an eight justice court. It was after justice Scalia's death, but before justice Gorsuch had been appointed to the court and that eight justice court divided four to four. So the case was carried over for reargument this year with the, with a full nine justice court. Now it was, uh, assumed just based on, on their prior positions and arguments that the justices split along, um, the stereotypical left, right lines. And that left the new Justice Gorsuch as the deciding vote. Now, in the decision, he'd sided with the liberal wing of the court. Um, so the four uh, justices that are kind of grouped as the liberal justices, plus Justice Gorsuch, made up the five justice um, majority. With the rest of the um, so-called conservative justices um, in the dissent. Um, now, so here's here's what this case is about. Um, it's about um, the, the the general issue is um, is when federal law. Relies in some way on state criminal convictions. Now, the the basic issue here is the vast majority of criminal prosecutions are under state law, but the federal government often wants to p- piggyback in some way on these state convictions. So, one example is um, felon in possession statutes, um, f- which uh, which uh, in determining whether someone is a, a, uh, f- um, a felon in possession or meets certain um, uh, special criteria for for uh, extra um, uh, sentencing enhancements, so longer sentences under federal law, um, it, the courts will uh, look at state court convictions. Um, in this particular case, it's about uh, deportation um, for certain convictions by an immigrant. Um the issue, though, is criminal laws vary enormously from state by state. They go by different names, they have different definitions, uh, they have different punishments. There's a lot of differences in in just how um, criminal the criminal laws are kind of organized and defined in different states. So, what how does the federal law determine which state convictions count for particular um, federal purposes? There's uh, there's various ways. Often, they will define certain specific state crimes that are covered. For example, murder uh you'd say murder and then any you know state um statute that that uh, that qualified as 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 murder could get um, swept in but sometimes they use uh what's referred to as a residual clause this is kind of a catch-all provision that's intended to sweep in a wider set of state crimes um now uh, let me give a little more detail the statute at issue in this case the immigration and nationality act has a provision where um a, a an alien convicted of an aggravated aggravated felony is uh, subject to deportation and is also ineligible for cancellation of removal, meaning uh, cancellation of, re- of removal is discretionary relief that allows some immigrants to uh, escape deportation even if they're eligible for it. But if someone's convicted of an aggravated felony, they're deportable and ineligible for cancellation. So that, that basically sets them up uh, for, for definitely being deported at some point. Now, aggravated felony, what's an aggravated felony? Well, it's defined to include numerous specific crimes, but it also has this kind of catch-all where it includes a crime of violence as defined under a, uh, a a particular federal criminal statute. Now, that federal criminal statute defines a crime of violence. It has kind of a, a, a two-part definition. The first part is a crime where the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force is an element of the crime, so it's one of the things that has to be proven to, to convict somebody of the crime. But the second one, and this is the part that's really at issue here, is it includes a crime that, quote, by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force against the person or property of another may be used in the course of committing the offense. And that's what's referred to as the residual clause. So how do you decide whether a particular crime fits this? How do you decide that some particular crime by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force uh, may be used? Um, And, and, um, the, the approach the courts have generally taken, and this will come up again in a few minutes is, is that you, the, they usually look at this def- not based on the specific facts of a particular immigrant's crime, but on a general assessment of the crime of conviction. So if someone's convicted of burglary, they say is burglary the type of crime that by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force uh, may be used, not whether physical force actually was used in the particular, um, instance of burglary, uh, the particular crime that someone was uh, con- convicted of. So the legal question at issue here is: Is this residual cause unconstitutionally vague? So is this is this just so so vague, so indeterminate, so so uh, that it leaves a uh, court so up in the air and how to figure out what fits uh, in this uh, definition that uh, that it's it's not constitutional to apply this? Um, basically, can the courts sensibly determine? Uh, in some kind of coherent way, what crimes involve a substantial risk of physical force? So here's the basic facts. I'll run through this real quick. The the, the criminal defendants, there are the, the immigrant uh, in this case who was subject to deportation. His name is James is named James DeMaya. He was an immigrant from the Philippines who's been a legal resident in the United States since 1992. Now, he was convicted of two California burglaries, and after the second one, removal proceedings were started against him. Um, the immigration judge and then later the Board of Immigration Appeals uh, held that the uh, California burglary statute uh, that, that he was convicted under was a crime of violence, and that means he's deportable. Now, the key precedent that the, that the court uh, looks at in this case is a case from 2015 called Johnson v. United States. Now this dealt with a completely different provision called the Armed Career Criminals Act, which uh which uh imposed a mandatory minimum sentence for a felon in possession of a firearm who had three prior violent felony convictions. Uh, but the important issue was it defined violent felonies with this uh, residual clause um, that, uh, that included felonies that involve conduct that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another. And the court in the Johnson case found that provision to be void for vagueness. So it was a violation of due process because the law was just too vague to give reasonable notice of what it covers. So Justice Kagan wrote the majority opinion in this case, and she was joined completely by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. And I mentioned that Gorsuch was part of the majority. He only joined her opinion in part, and I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, so Justice Kagan, for the uh, the the um, rest of the the liberal um, wing of the court, plus Justice Gorsuch in part, and and basically she argues um, that it's clear that in the criminal context this vague for uh, void, void for vagueness um doctrine applies but also in in the um in in the uh immigration removal context because um immigration removal is is such a serious deportation is such a serious a severe penalty um that that and in in many cases it, for for some immigrants being deported is 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 far more um uh, serious to them than than a potential jail sentence, that um, this uh, carries the same concerns, the same due process concerns, and the uh, void for vagueness uh, uh, idea should apply with equal force. And she basically says that this decision follows directly from the Johnson case. The court has to imagine an idealized kind of ordinary version of the crime, and this is just something that courts just can't Feasibly do. So burglary, that's the crime at issue here. It can, it can cover a huge range of conduct with vi- widely varying levels of risk. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, in his separate opinion, which I'll talk about later, mentioned, he, he says, California burglary, quote, applies to everyone from armed home intruders to door to door salesmen peddling shady products. Just to, to argue that there just isn't a clear, um, kind of, um, idealized, uh, ordinary version of this crime that you can obviously determine whether or not it's, um, it's uh has this substantial risk of uh, physical force and also uh Kagan says that uh, again following the Johnson case the the idea of substantial risk itself is very vague and that that com- compounds the first problem how much risk is enough for this um, and the, the language in the, uh, the Armed Career Criminals Act was serious potential risk and the substantial risk in this statute she finds to be no more determinant than that. So it raises the same problem. Um, and then she goes on to respond in her opinion to some of the, uh, the, the dissents in this case. I'm going to talk about those dissents very briefly. There was a dissent by Justice Roberts and he focuses on the specific differences in the text of the, the statute at issue here. Defining crime of violence and the provision of the Armed Career Criminals Act in Johnson and it points to the language substantial risk in this statute versus serious potential risk. It says that potential introduces more speculation about downstream consequences. He, this, the statute in this case involves the active use of physical force, whereas the other, the Armed Career Criminals Act one, uh, dealt with risk of injury instead of the active use of physical force. It's a risk of injury. And so that instead focuses narrowly on the actions of the perpetrator of the crime. And also this, uh, this, um, statute has language that says it it applies in the course of committing the offense. So it's, uh, the risk, substantial risk of the use of physical force in the course of committing the offense. And that kind of places a temporal limit around it and says that these various, um, kind of limitations make this more clear, um, and, uh, and, and allows, allows courts to apply this more easily. Um, and, uh, Justice Kagan responds to to each of these basically saying that, that they don't change the analysis. The, the, in the course of committing the offense language, um, goes beyond just merely satisfying the elements of the, the offense. So a burglary, um, the crime of burglary may be committed, completely committed once, as soon as the, uh, the criminal enters the home. Um, but the course of committing the offense continues the entire time they're in there. And that's, doesn't really narrow the definition at all because that's, that's, uh, Um, for, for many crimes, that's just, that's what the courts were looking at already under the, uh, armed Career criminal act. And then also the risk of physical force. She says that, that, um, that the difficulty is determining what's the ordinary case, not the specific consequences, which is not as hard. And also notes that physical force is generally defined as force sufficient to cause injury. So there's not a whole lot of difference between force sufficient to cause injury and actual risk of injury. And then, um, and 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 she notes that there have been uh, divisions between uh, lower federal courts on whether specific offenses qualify as crimes of violence under this uh, under this act now justice thomas had a separate dissent <coughs> excuse me and um he he had uh, a few different things so one one um argument he made was he actually rejects he continues he dissented in the johnson case and he argues that this categorical approach where the court doesn't consider the specific thing that the defendant the specific instance of the crime committed by the 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 particular defendant, but instead considers the whole uh, the the ordinary case of the particular crime is he says that's the wrong approach and the court um, should not be applying that um, and and he in in this in his specific argument that in this particular immigration provision, Um, that the, this categorical approach shouldn't be applied. He was joined by Justices Roberts and Alito. Um, so that the, the, uh, the three, um, all joined on this particular point, uh, and, 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 uh, said that the language of the, the statute didn't rule out this individualized, um, uh, application. Um, Justice Kagan responds to that basically by saying that, that this approach was already rejected in the Johnson case and argues that there's a Sixth Amendment problem. That's the the, the right to a jury trial. There's a right to a jury trial problem with uh, having it depend on the specific um, – the uh, uh, facts of the, the particular crime, whether it's a crime of violence, because this is something that's determined by a judge, not a jury – and that removes the the right to have a jury determine uh, the specific facts now now this this particular case is an immigration case where there isn't a right to to jury trial, but the definition of crimes of violence is in a, a criminal provision that's also used in other criminal crimes, so she says it shouldn't mean one thing in immigration and and the same exact language means something different in the criminal context when it's the exact same provision of law um, but anyway, Justice Thomas goes on beyond that uh, particular uh um, Criticism. He makes a, a, a much broader critique, a, a constitutional cr- critique, um, about the, the the void for vagueness doctrine in general. And he argues that that under the concept of due process, just should not even um, uh, encompass the idea of this void for vagueness. He he has a very narrow interpretation of due process that basically says only due process only requires that the government proceed according to the statutes and constitution and statutory provisions that are in place before it deprives someone of life, liberty, or property. So it's whatever rules that are in place, the government has to follow those rules. Um, but there's no, in Justice Thomas's view, no specific requirement of what the law must be. Um, just just that whatever that law is, the government has to apply it. And under that interpretation, um, vagueness uh, just doesn't matter. If there's a vague law, the government has to follow it. Um, but there's no requirement that, uh, that, that, uh, um, that would allow, uh, there's no re- requirement kind of policing the terms of the laws that the government does have in place. Um, and he has a few other, uh, similar kind of constitutional, um, uh, concerns in that respect. Now, the interesting thing here, now I'm going to co- go back to Justice Gorsuch. He, he issued a concurrence. He, he joined most of Justice uh, Kagan's majority, but also had a separate concurrence. And part of his concurrence was directly uh, responding to Justice Thomas's um position and 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 he goes through kind of an extensive his own historical analysis so you have these very these competing historical analysis going through analyses going through early american history um and early case law and uh some of the predecessors to to uh the american um, due process uh concept um coming to different different uh, conclusions on it and justice gorsuch concludes that um that the the due process is broader than Justice Thomas' um, uh, version of it and says that, that someone is entitled at least to the customary procedures to which uh, people were entitled under the laws of England, uh, which include fair notice, which which has been defined in cases as precise and sufficient certainty about the charges someone's sus- um, subject to. And, and he points to a long history of treating various vague statutes as basically nullities because they were, they were too vague to be um, uh to be, uh, determined. Um, and so, so, so he kind of has that, uh, that distinct, that, uh, argument with, uh, Justice Thomas. Now, the interesting thing here is he, um, rejects, and the part of Justice Kagan's decision that he did not join was, um, he rejects the distinction, um, between, for purposes of this vagueness doctrine, between, um, civil, uh, most civil actions, most and 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 criminal actions. Now, Justice Kagan's decision basically said, um, deportation is serious enough that we can group it with criminal actions for purposes of having a very strong vagueness doctrine. Um, but Justice Gorsuch argues there's no reason to differentiate between the two. He says some civil laws impose a harsher penalties than many criminal laws. Sometimes even the same conduct can have extremely um, onerous uh civil penalties um but uh relatively speaking mild criminal um penalties and he points to things like confiscatory fines property forfeitures loss of professional life licensures and even involuntary commitment as civil penalties that that are you know can can result in an extreme loss of uh, liberty or property um and so so he argues uh that 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 actually he he would go uh he would um have a much, uh, broader version of the void for vagueness, uh, doctrine than the rest of the, uh, justices in the majority. Um, and finally, interestingly, he doesn't, he's, he says that the court, the majority should, should reserve its judgment on the, the, um, the ordinary case, the, the categorical approach versus a, a case by case, uh, um, inquiry as far as the, uh, the residual clause is concerned because he says no party to the action, meaning basically the U S government didn't argue otherwise. And so the court should, uh, it's really, the issue is not presented in this case. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's kind of, uh, the, the, uh, scope of this, uh, this case. It's just an, an interesting lineup, an interesting historical argument between justices Thomas and Gorsuch and an interesting, uh, kind of, um, uh, sign of, of where justice Gorsuch kind of, um, uh, how how he views uh, these issues particularly in the criminal and uh, immigration context um so anyway, that's uh, that's the two new opinions for this week. Now that took took a while, so I want to very quickly try and run through the cases the court's going to hear next week, just for for purposes of time and keeping this short. I'm going to go uh, very quickly through these, but again, there's six cases, um, and, and I'll just try and give a very brief idea of what each one is about. Now, the first case on Monday, Monday, the court will be hearing three cases. The first case is called Lucia v SEC. That's the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, I, I've I've heard this case uh, pronounced Lucia. Uh, I'm gonna go with Lucy, I don't actually know which is the correct pronunciation, but this is a case that's basically challenging the, uh, the, the, um, legality of the constitutionality of the appointment of the SEC's administrative law judges. Now, administrative law judges called ALJs for short are agency officials, they're not judicial officers they're not members of the judiciary but they're agency officials that have a judge like uh function they do they have trial like adjudications and they hear they they hold hearings and and uh, uh adjudicate matters within the agency now the the issue here is that the constitution establishes the methods of appointing uh officers of the United States um, and there's specific provisions. And it depends whether someone is what's referred to as a principal officer or an inferior officer. But basically, let's just assuming because this is the, the the issue that's being argued in this case, assuming someone's an inferior officer of the United States, they either have to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, or Congress can pass a law that um, that vests their appointment in uh, in the president alone, or the courts, or the heads of departments—being the heads of departments, um, meaning like a, a cabinet secretary or someone someone who's in charge of the particular department. Now, uh, apart from these officers, there are employees. That's just a separate category. These are people that are hired, not appointed, um, but hired just through a normal hiring process. Now, some cases challenge the line between a principal officer and a inferior officer. This case is the question between officers generally, generally, so an inferior officer at the, at the bottom and mere employees. And the challenge here is that the ALJs at the SEC were not appointed by the commission. Now the commission, that's the actual commissioners who are at the top of the SEC. They would be the heads of the department who, who under the constitution could be given the authority to appoint, uh, inferior officers. They're not the ones who had selected the ALJs. Instead, they were selected by certain SEC staff. So the argument here was that this was just unconstitutional, these appointments. Now, the, the, uh, the, the party in this case, Lucia, was an investment professional who had been charged with the SEC, by the SEC with fraud in presentations to potential clients. He was tried before an SEC ALJ, Administrative Law Judge. He was found guilty and had some pretty severe consequences. He was stripped of his license, barred from the industry and fined. Um, Now, he argues that the charges were flawed and unfair and and he shouldn't be convicted. But in any case, he brought a challenge against the constitutionality of the ALJ's appointment. The ALJs exercise broad discretionary authority. It's similar to a a judge in many ways, um, but their decisions are subject to review by the commission, the SEC commissioners. Um, Interestingly, in this case, the U.S. government... Um, now, uh, this was a change in, in position after the, 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 uh, the Trump administration uh, the, uh, uh, took over. The U.S. government now supports um, Lucia in this case and, and, and says that the ALJs are officers uh, who were not constitutionally appointed. Um, so there's a question here. Who, so who is an officer? Um, Lucia argues that that it's, that it's a pretty broad definition. Anyone who's who's exercising an office established by law and exercises significant federal authority is an officer. Now, as I said, the the, U- the U.S. government is no longer uh, defending the other side of this case, so the court appointed an amicus—that's a friend of the court—an uh, outside attorney to defend the, the position below is to defend the position that these are not officers who needed to be appointed under this constitutional provision. And so an attorney named Anton Metlitsky, uh, is, is arguing, um, this, the other position, and he argues for a much narrower definition of officers, says it's o- it's only someone who can bind the government in his or her own name. So not someone who has, um, who's just exercising, uh, the authority of some superior, but someone who under law is specifically given by virtue of their position, the power to bind someone, uh, uh, in, in, in some way. Um, and he also says that ALJ decisions are not final decisions. They must be approved by the commission. Um, and so all the accountability rests with the commission and that kind of satisfies the whole purpose of the appointments clause in the first place. The accountability is with the, the officers who are appointed, Um, under the constitutional procedure, procedure, procedures, excuse me. Um, there's also dispute over the remedy here. So even if, um, these, uh, administrative law judges are, were unconstitutionally appointed, well, what do you do about it? So the SEC, um, after, uh, uh, President Trump, uh, uh, took office and changed the position, the SEC, uh, issued an order ratifying the previous appointment of the ALJs. So they said, you know, we, as a commission, um, now ratify their appointment, um, now, Lucia says that this this uh, this doesn't provide him any redress. That doesn't fix the problem that he was uh, tried and convicted by an unconstitutional ALJ. He argues that he needs an entirely new procedure. The, the the proceeding, the previous proceeding, was a legal nullity and can't be retroactively made legal. And the and the ALJ that heard it is kind of tainted by p- participating in this unconstitutional proceeding. And he also argues that that dismissal is is really appropriate because the SEC's ratification order shows it doesn't take seriously the constitutional issue involved. And the SETC intends to return the case to the prior ALJ, uh, to just, uh, just rubber stamp the previous work. And that's what has been done in many other, um, cases similar to his. So he argues that, um, that uh, due to kind of the, the, the circumstances it would be appropriate to just throw his case out. That's, that's uh, his argument there. And so just some context here, there's a huge variety of different theories on what the test for officer should be and the Supreme court's case law doesn't really, uh, is not particularly satisfying. There's several cases that have touched on this that, that kind of don't uh, give one clear uh, uh, line. There's a lot of interesting historical arguments um uh, going in, in various directions on exactly how the court should, should draw this line. And the potential implications of this case, depending on how the court decides it and, and exactly what they say about who is and isn't an officer, could have a huge implication on numerous different agencies. Many different agencies have their own ALJs, and this decision could potentially reach much further than just ALJs to a lot of other federal employees. But again, it totally deci- depends on how broadly or narrowly the case uh, court decides this case. So moving on, the next case also i um, going to be argued on Monday is called Pereira v. Sessions. And this is a case about um, the, uh, um, the uh, attorney general's ability to cancel removal procedures against a, um, a, a deportable alien. So, so, the issue is um say say someone is a an unauthorized uh, um, uh, immigrant and um they are subject to deportation um there are provisions where they can they can uh, they can seek cancellation of removal so that's a discretionary process where where their removal can be canceled and they can be given a legal status to remain in the united states one of the conditions for being eligible for for that discretionary procedure is that they had to have resided for 10 years. They had to have 10 years of continuous presence in the United States. The issue here is there's a provision known as the stop time rule, which is basically says once the, um, once the, the immigrant receives notice um, notice to appear for removal procedure proceedings, then the the clock stops for purposes of accruing ten years of continuous presence, and the purpose of this is it was to prevent an immigrant who's been served with a notice that they're going to be uh, the removal proceedings are going to start. It's to prevent them from from doing everything they can to delay the proceedings, drag their feet, and delay the proceedings in order to gain more time to meet this ten year eligibility. So basically, suppose someone's been in the in the country for eight years, they get served with a notice of uh, uh, one of these notices that there's going to be removal proceedings, um, then. And the clock has just stopped. They only have eight years. They can never meet that 10-year requirement, and they're not eligible for this cancellation. Now, the issue here is that there's a particular provision um, that defines uh, requirements um, of, of – uh, for the this, the this notice referred to as a notice to appear, the notice that kind of stops the clock. And uh, there's various uh, requirements that have to be included in this notice, and one of them is the time and place at which the removal proceedings will be held. Now, here's the issue. Pereira, Wesley Pereira, entered the United States in the year 2000. He was served with a notice in the year 2006, but that notice had no date or time for the removal proceedings. Now, he was eventually in 2013... He was detained by DHS. Now, 2013 is more than 10 years of continuous residence, so he could potentially be eligible for cancellation. He applied for cancellation, um, but this was uh, denied uh, because they said that the notice served in 2006 stopped the clock. And so he didn't have 10 years. Now DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, has a practice of routinely sending these notices without any date and time. And according to DHS, that doesn't matter as as long as they send the notice. The notice is what stops the clock. It doesn't matter if it has some technical defects or is missing some information. Um, But sometimes they follow up with deportation proceedings. Sometimes years later after this notice is served, if the clock had been allowed to run, cancellation might be uh, uh, cancellation of removal might have been a possibility in some of these cases. Now, Pereira argues the statute is clear. It says that basically the the notice to appear provision is is basically definitional. It's kind of defining what it means for something to be a notice of appear, to appear. And one of the criteria is that it includes the date and time. So if something doesn't have the date and time of the removal proceedings, it just isn't a, a notice of a, to appear under this uh, this uh, statute, and therefore it doesn't stop the clock. Now, the government, on the other hand, argues that, 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 that the, the, the reference to that notice appear, to appear is just intended to kind of identify the type of notice that has to be re- to, um, received in order to stop the clock, and it wasn't um, meant to, uh, to mandate that every single um, uh, every single requirement on there has to be met. And they say this is immaterial and, uh, and, and doesn't affect whether the clock is stopped. Now, move on. The third case of the day on Monday is called Chavez-Mesa of the United States. Now, interesting note about this case. This case is scheduled to be argued for the United States by the Deputy, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Now, apparently, there's a tradition that presidentially appointed officials at the Justice Department are allowed to argue one Supreme Court case, uh, basically as a courtesy. Normally, all of the United States' arguments at the Supreme Court are handed by the Office of Solicitor General, which is a special division inside the Department of Justice that handles um, the Supreme Court. Um, but other high Justice Department officials are allowed this courtesy of arguing one case, and this is uh, this is the Rosenstein's case. Now. He's obviously been in the news recently as a target of President Trump's ire due to his role with respect to the the Mueller investigation. And there's been a lot of speculation about what uh, the uh, Solicitor General's office would do in the event of a last-minute firing uh, shortly before the oral argument. But uh, um, uh, hopefully we won't have to find out um, how they they would deal with that. Now, the issue here is uh, it's, it's about federal sentencing guidelines. Now, the federal um, the federal in the federal courts, there's a set of sentencing guidelines that calculate a range of time um, that that someone should spend in prison uh, for a particular crime based on a variety of factors. Now. Um, the, the way it works is when someone is, someone is sentenced for a federal crime, the sentencing court has to calculate a sentence under these sentencing guidelines. This guideline sentence range, it provides a range of months, and this range isn't binding on the court, but it's highly into, in, influential. Now, it creates a starting point. Courts can um, depart up or down from the that, that range, from the guidelines, um, but, but they have to calculate it, and, and it provides kind of a very important starting point, and many, many sentences are within that range, or at least start from that range as a starting point. Now, what happens if a sentencing range is later lowered? So the United States Sentencing Commission is in charge of uh, establishing these guidelines, um, and sometimes they, they decide that a previous sentencing range is too high and should be lowered. Now, there's a provision that says a court can consider a reduction um, if, if, the, if if someone is sentenced. And and they're given a particular range of months under the sentencing guidelines, and the guidelines that they're sentenced under are later lowered so that the the sentence that's recommended would be lower. Then the court can consider certain factors and um and sentence them to a reduced uh, period of time. But this statute that allows this resentencing, it requires the court to consider certain specific factors in their resentencing, but doesn't explicitly say that the court has to um has to explain how it's applying that factors and wh- or why it's resentencing the way it is. Now, what happened in this case is Chavez Mesa pleaded guilty to possession of meth- uh, methamphetamines with the intent to distribute. And his guidelines range, which is largely based on the quantity of the drugs involved, was, um, was 135 to 168 months. Now, that's about 11 to 14 years. The judge sentenced him to 135 months, which is the bottom of that range. This range was later amended. So instead of 135 to 168, it dropped down to 108 to 135. He requested that he have a proportional adjustment and be dropped down to 108 months, which is the bottom of the new range. Um, and, and, um, instead the judge reduced his sentence only to 114 months. Now it's still within the new range, but he was at the bottom of the previous range. Now he's, somewhere in the middle of the new range. And there was no explanation of why that change was made as it was. He argues that, um, that the, the, the requirement that the court, um, consider certain specific factors in the resentencing um, just uh, implies that that the court has to indicate uh, how it's using those factors because otherwise, he says, appellate review is effectively unavailable. An appeals court is just uh, has no way of making sure that the lower court is doing what it was supposed to do and appropriately um, considering the various uh, factors involved. Um, The government on the other side says, no, the statute doesn't require... Um, unlike the original sentencing, where the statute specifically requires an explanation, um, the resentencing statute doesn't require that. The appellate courts regularly review decisions that are made without um, explanation. For example, during a trial, various evidentiary rules will be made, uh, rulings will be made uh, on the fly with no explanation, and courts regularly review those. And also, a range that's within the guidelines just doesn't require any explanation. The original sentence. Uh, the reasons given for his original sentence could have easily justified a sentence that was six months above the bottom of the range, just like the six months above the bottom of the range that he has now so there's there's really no need for the judge to give any more explanation that 's the government's argument basically so let's move on a couple more cases i'm going to try and move again quickly through all of these just because this is already getting a little long. but the first one case on Tuesday is called Abbott v Perez now this is uh, two consolidated cases out of Texas that are challenges to Texas's electoral maps um, as uh, illegal racial gerrymandering. And the basic facts of this case are this. There's there's two challenges. One is to the fe- uh, several federal congressional districts, and one is to a state house district. Now, in 2011, Texas enacted new electoral maps after the 2010 census. This plan was challenged. There was various allegations of racial gerrymandering in various districts. In 2012, while the litigation was ongoing, the district court that was overseeing the federal district court overseeing that litigation drew up an interim plan for the 2012 election, just to have a plan in place for the 2012 election. And it carried some of the districts over directly from the 2011 map, but made some other changes to cure um, what it what it identified as racial gerrymandering problems. And this was this was not a final court decision, but it was kind of an interim decision um, while the case was was ongoing. Now, in 2013 the legislature basically just adopted the 2012 plan that the court had put in place for the 2012 elect- election. So they officially adopted that as their own plan with some minor changes that aren't really relevant here. The litigation continued after that. And what the, what happened and what brought this to the Supreme Court is in 2017, the federal district court f- found that the 2013 plan was tainted by racial motives behind the 2011 plan and found that three particular districts were, um, unconstitutional gerrymander, racial gerrymanders in various ways. Um, and so this, this is up to the, the Supreme Court. Now, there's an interesting thing. These particular types of, um, these, uh, election redistricting cases, um, there's a, uh, unusual procedure where in federal courts, instead of being heard by one trial judge, they're heard by a panel of three trial judges, three district judges. And then there's an ability to appeal those decisions directly to the Supreme Court, um, bypassing the courts of appeals entirely. Um, there's one, a first issue in this case, whether the Supreme Court actually has jurisdiction to, to hear this case. Now, the, the odd thing about this is that the district court in this case declared the, um, the existing maps invalid, but didn't explicitly enter an injunction, like an official order ordering Texas to do anything. Texas says this is functionally an injunction um, because it basically prevents Texas from using the old map and requires them to up, draw, draw up new maps before the election, even though the court hasn't explicitly ordered that. So it's close enough. Now, the issue is the court only has uh, jurisdiction to hear um, these appeals directly from these three judge panels when those panels grant or deny an injunction. Now, usually that's exactly what's happening in these election redistricting cases, but technically there's no injunction here. So there's an issue of whether the court even has jurisdiction here. But on the merits the basic argument here is the the argument by the um the challengers uh, to these districts is that there was a discriminatory intent present in 2011 um and then when those same districts were adopted in 2013 unchanged from the 2011 map they they were continuously those districts were continuously enforced from 2011 on they were unchanged and so any racial animus that affected the 2011 um line drawing is still there with respect to the 2013 map. Now, Texas argues on the other hand that in 2013 the legislators very explicitly relied on the district court's rulings that this 2012 map complied with the various legal requirements. Um and so they they say look the the te- the legislators in 2013 wanted to avoid all this litigation over racial gerrymandering the 2012 map had been put in place by the court so they chose to just adopt that as their map. And the challengers say well they're just trying to shield their 2011 misdeeds by um, by by virtue of having snuck this past the court in 2012, they shouldn't be immunized from the the bad intent that was behind the 2011 uh, map just because the court in 2012 didn't happen to um, fix all of the the problems. Um, so so that's that's kind of the the, the basic uh, main legal issue there. So the second case on Tuesday next week. This is actually my my favorite uh, case of the ca- cases that are going to be heard this week. It's kind of a very odd circumstance. So here's the issue: in 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 a number of different circumstances, a case that's in American court might depend in some way on the law of a foreign country. So for example. There are U.S. laws that criminalize importing certain goods into the U.S. in violation of the laws of the country of origin. Well, in order to convict someone of that, you need to determine what the laws are of the country of origin that were supposedly violated. Here's another example. Imagine, for example, there was a contract that required a party to transfer certain property located in Ontario in accordance with Canadian law. And then there was a suit for breach of contract. The court might need to determine whether Canadian law was complied with in order to determine whether there's a breach of contract. So how does a court figure out what foreign law requires? And what if we're not talking about Canada, which at least has a common legal tradition with the United States and has legal resources widely available in English? But what if instead we're talking about a country like China, where all of the primary legal authorities are in a different language with very limited resources in translation, and the legal and political systems are extremely dissimilar from the United States? Now, the broad question is, how does a court determine the law of a foreign country? And the, 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 there's, there's some guidance to this in a federal rule of civil procedure. It's federal rule 44.1. This is a rule of conducting civil cases. It says, in determining foreign law, the court may consider any relevant material or source, including testimony, whether or not submitted by a party or admissible under the federal rules of evidence. So basically just saying a court can consider anything. But it doesn't tell a court how much weight to give it, uh, any particular type of evidence. Now, the more specific question here is, when a court is determining what the law is of a foreign country, how much weight should a court give to assertions about that law from official agencies of that foreign government? So here's this case particularly. The com- company called Animal Science Products... Um, it, it's a, it, it's, uh, they sell vitamins and they brought an antitrust action against two Chinese vitamin manufacturers and they alleged that they're engaged in illegal price fixing. Now the, the, the Chinese vitamin manufacturers, they, they argued in defense, in their defense, they argued that this price fixing was actually required under Chinese law. Now what happened is a Chinese government agency specifically it was the ministry of commerce in China appeared in. In the, uh, the district court, the, the trial court, as an amicus, as a friend of the court, and told the court that in fact this price fixing was required under Chinese law. Now the district court didn't believe this representation from the Chinese government and said based on contemporaneous evidence, it didn't believe this was actually the case and found that, uh, that, that this the, denied this defense that it was uh, required, uh, refused to dismiss the case, uh, according, uh, on the basis of this defense. Now the, the court of appeals overruled this and basically said in this situation, when the foreign government actually appears in litigation, deference is required. Um, if China hadn't appeared As as a you know an amicus a friend of the court in the litigation, then the district court's careful balancing would have been appropriate. But um, in this case, where the the foreign government actually came to court and told the court what the right interpretation was, the district court had to defer to that um, interpretation. So the question here is: Is that right? Must courts defer to a foreign government's um, interpretation of its own law? now on the on the one hand the the argument is well, they have expertise they they understand the legal context the language the interpretive practices of that particular country, so they're in the best position to be able to actually explain what the law means and also there's an issue of, of what's referred to as comedy comedy that's uh c o m i t y it's is the idea um that country should should give uh, a A level of respect to, uh, foreign sovereigns and avoid creating international tension by insulting or disregarding foreign laws or foreign governments. And, and this, this, uh, you know, this, this concept of comedy, um, suggests that you should defer to the foreign government. Now, on the other side, there's the argument that foreign governments sometimes have ulterior motives. Here, the argument is that the Chinese government is just trying to protect these Chinese companies from legal liability. And specifically, Animal Science Products, in its briefs, it paints a pretty ugly picture of a Chinese government agency allegedly con- colluding with these Chinese governments to willfully and egregiously misrepresent Chinese law in order to shield the companies from liability. Now, um, it, it just raises some, some very interesting questions, and there's some interesting comparisons to American law and how the court's um courts deal with us agents agencies who come into court and 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 uh and want to argue um specifically what the law um what the law is uh, that that should apply um and uh there are some there there's these uh there are some legal doctrines, um, that go kind of broadly under the labels of Chevron deference and our deference, um, the, in, in many circumstances require courts to defer to an agency's interpretation of laws that that agency administers. But it's, it's far from absolute. Uh, courts don't just accept the agency's assertions. They scrutinize them and make sure the agency's assert, interpretation is otherwise consistent with the law. Um, and there, and, and, uh, There's various checks on it, and it's not at all unusual for a U.S. agency to come to court and say, this is what the law that we administer means, and have the court basically respond, no, no, it doesn't, you're wrong. Um, So it's kind of odd if the argument is that a foreign agency gets even more deference than a U.S. agency would in in U.S. courts. Um, But on the other hand, there is a real problem of expertise in trying to understand foreign law. Even when we're talking about domestic law, especially complex regulatory regimes, sometimes it's incredibly challenging to figure out the correct interpretation. There's specialized terminology. There may be overlapping regulatory uh, schemes. There may be case law interpreta- interpreting particular provisions in counterintuitive ways. And, and there may be, in some cases, regular agency practices that are at odds with the official procedures on the books. And we add to all that the unf- an unfamiliar government, unfamiliar government bodies and unfamiliar legal codes and only having secondary sources and imperfect translations, then it's a real question of whether courts should be in the business of second guessing an official go- foreign government's um pronouncement on what its law is. Uh, one interesting note in this case the ministry of commerce for uh for China is actually being allowed some argument time at the court. Um, it's very unusual the court d- rarely allows other than the US government rarely allows amicus uh uh parties to to um, actually argue at oral argument and this is kind of an uh, example of the Uh, comedy concept that they're giving uh the government of china kind of um uh special consideration in actually uh getting to directly participate in the proceeding. Anyway, moving on to the last case uh that will be argued next week on Wednesday, and this is Hawaii v Trump. Now, this is the case that litigate the travel ban litigation, the the case about the challenge to um, the President Trump's proclamation that um, barred entry into the country from uh, nationals of of certain countries. Um and uh, this, this case, uh, the, the litigation right now, ref- uh, it focuses around what was the third version of the travel ban order. And this, this was, was issued, um, in, uh, in September. Um, this was the third version. The, the, the earlier versions of the travel ban were explicitly temporary and they were, set, they were set to expire. And on the expiration of those earlier versions, this, this was put in as the permanent version of the travel ban. And that's the one at issue in this particular case. Um, and there there are several different arguments that are in play and I'm going to run through them extremely briefly one is a statutory argument and the argument is the president lacked the authority to bar entry from uh, nationals of of the the countries in question um, because of a provision um a provision of law that uh that that uh, specifically bars here, here's the language Um, no person shall receive any preference or priority or be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa because of the person's race, sex, nationality, place of birth, or place of residence. And the argument is nationality is specifically included in that. So there's, should be no discrimination on the basis of nationality. Um, so this bars the president's action. Um, the argument on the other side is there's another provision of law that gives very broad authority to the president to, um, exclude, uh, 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 people from entry into the country, and and it basically says, whenever the President finds the entry of any aliens or any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation, and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem to be appropriate. So it's an extremely broad delegation of authority to the, 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 uh, the President to deny entry to certain people. And so that's kind of a clash of these two provisions the government argues that um the the uh non-discrimination provision applies only to the issuance of immigrant visas which is just one category of visa um that that uh that is issued uh, and doesn't deal with the issue of entry into the country which is a separate concept from issuance of a visa um and so that these two provisions don't actually conflict um <clears throat> and, and they cite some historical precedents that they say justify this kind of a uh, a ban. But in addition to the statutory argument, there's there's also a constitutional claim. And the, the claim is that, that uh, this travel ban is a violation of the First Amendment's um, establishment clause. That's the First Amendment provision that prohibits preferential treatment of provisions. The argument here is that this um, travel ban was motivated uh, by President Trump's uh, anti-Muslim animus. And this is demonstrated by Trump's Public statements, including during the presidential campaign, uh, specific uh, statement saying that he wanted to um, shut down all uh, Muslims uh, entering the country. Now, the government argues that th- this is, in fact, the, the the result, especially this this latest version of the travel event ban, as a result of a neutral review program um, that required. Uh, information from various countries around the world and assess them on, on their ability to, uh, provide, uh, adequate information about their, uh, nationals who are traveling to the United States. And that in their latest version of the travel ban, they, they dropped certain Muslim countries from an earlier version of a ban, the ban after the review, um, and, uh, and added, uh, and drop certain categories of entry entrance from other Muslim countries. So that this wasn't motivated by anti-Muslim anti-Muslim animus, but by the fact that certain countries just don't have um, adequate protections to allow us to be allowed the United States to be, uh, um, securing, uh, uh, who, who is, uh, the identities and, uh, backgrounds of people that are entering the country. Um, so so that's that's the the kind of the in uh, in brief the constitutional argument that's going on. There's actually a, a side a kind of procedural issue in this case also that it would be that the court has specifically um uh granted as an, an issue that it was going to address. And this is an issue of, about nationwide injunctions. So in the Travel Ban case and this has been a regular feature of of men, much of the litigation um against the Trump administration. Now it wasn't new. This was a this was kind of a trend that started um under President Obama. Um, but has accelerated and become extremely common in litigation uh, against the trump administration um, where uh, actions are taken, uh, challenging, uh, lawsuits are brought challenging actions of the, uh, the, the administration, and courts have issued injunctions that don't just apply to the specific parties involved in the, in the, in the case. So the travel ban litigation, the injunctions that were ordered, issued, didn't just apply to the specific, um, immigrants who were challenging the travel ban, but they were applied nationwide to everyone across the country. Now, the argument is that traditionally injunctions only bind the specific parties to the case. There are cl- separate you know, class action procedures that exist to challenge on behalf of all people who are affected, but class action procedures have uh, um, very specific procedural requirements that have to be proce- um, followed in order to um, certify a particular class. And nationwide injunctions, the argument is, are, are just bypassing these procedural protections and kind of um, ignoring normal uh, rules of of, uh, of who... who uh, um uh, of who can be bound by an injunction or um uh, how broadly an injunction can uh, can can be issued um the Supreme Court has, has taken cases in the past that involved nationwide injunctions, but has never specifically addressed the issue of the appropriateness of nationwide injunctions or, or uh, how they should be used. Um, so, so here they actually, they specifically, uh, um, granted a question about the proper scope of the injunction. So this may be an issue that the court has finally decided to weigh in on. Um, so that, uh, that does it for, um, uh, next week's arguments. And again, next week is the, last week of oral arguments from the terms. From here on out, it's just going to be basically opinions, all, all those uh 45 uh, cases that the court has to decide between now and the end of June. Um, our next live stream will be a week from today. That's Thursday, April 26th, at ni- again, at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual weekly live stream time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel for the next scheduled live stream. Next week's live stream... Um, Tomorrow, that's Friday, April 20th. the court has another of its private conferences. So there's, again, a chance of some new granted cases on Monday morning's orders list. Um, It seems like there's a high likelihood that we'll get one or more opinions next week just because there's such a backlog and we're getting toward the end of the term. Um, And so if that does happen, that will likely happen on Tuesday or Wednesday at 10 a.m., just before, immediately before the day's uh, oral arguments. Um, so so we'll see we, if we, we get some more opinions next week. And, of course, there's always a possibility of emergency orders or other interesting developments. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at CountingToFive.com, on the counting to five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at counting to five or send an email to Mike at CountingToFive.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.